I am Darnell Moore, and this is Being Seen. An in-depth exploration of culture's role in resolving the tensions between how we are seen and how we see ourselves. Focused on the gay and queer Black male experience, the first season is a space to explore culture with leading artists, writers, activists, and entertainers. If we create nuanced and accurate cultural portrayals of identity and experience, we have an opportunity to reduce stigma and change perception, impacting everything from HIV to institutional inequity. It is a peculiar sensation, this double consciousness, this sense of always looking at oneself through the eyes of others, of measuring one's soul by the tape of a world that looks on and amused contempt and pity. One ever feels his tunis, an American, a Negro. Two souls, two thoughts, two unreconciled strivings, two warring ideas in one dark body whose dogged strength alone keeps it from being torn asunder. W.E.B. Du Bois. The feeling of being watched, someone's eyes upon you, a constant gaze that is not your own but ever-present, the feeling of being split in two as you do your thing, as you live your life, the heaviness of the judgments, the expectations, the anticipations, cutting away from your sense of self. This is not how I want to be seen. This is not how I see myself. In my own gaze, I am something else altogether. And it is not for me to explain. It is for others to observe and to try gently and patiently to understand. The White Gaze, a history captured and documented by someone other. The ways others profit from our pain and why framing our own images matters. Giancarlo Valentin, photographer, curator, and writer. The Black Panther Party was imaged by Stephen Shames. He did the entirety of their history. Any image that you have when you look at the Black Panther Party photographs is by a white man. Jonathan Mannion speaks and shames Black photographers in this way of like, it's so, uh, white people are so audacious that even though I don't allow myself to be surprised in theory, I'm always surprised by how audacious they manage to be. And, you know, Dennis Scruggs had shot a cover and Jonathan Mannion comes out and is like, I did it first, blah, 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 to a black woman, the first black woman in history to shoot the cover of Rolling Stone. It was insane. So, um, you know, this is an ongoing conversation about, one, the, the only thing that I'm really interested in doing with my photographic work at all is just kind of keeping up the history. If you think about my photos, it's like my dad owned a business, my dad is dead. And now I'm going to keep up this business for him and for the community, let's say. That's kind of how I feel about photography. It's not about reinventing the wheel. I'm not out here trying to be, you know, the most original or the most brand new. I have no, that's not what I'm trying to do. I can do other things for that. I'm just really interested in keeping up a particular tradition and writing a historical wrong. And in writing the historical wrong, it should not be the case that every one of our images Every historical moment that you literally can imagine was framed by someone white. We are not your subjects. And sometimes the archives can't contain us. Sometimes we are absent. Texas Isaiah, photographer and curator. 
I want to read you some words that you recently said, because I love doing stuff like that. Quote, I think one of the things that does frustrate me is a lack of intention that we have when curating language around what Black image making can look like, end quote. Can you speak more about that? And um, Yeah, I just would love to hear more, unpack that for us. Um, and specifically when it comes to like image making of Black, um, queer, gender expansive, um, trans folk, like what there's something there in what you're saying. I just want you to just be able to riff and preach on it. Yeah. Um, you know, I think we need to visit and reframe the terms we often use. You know, how we speak of people and experiences should be prioritized. You know, for example, I don't refer to anyone I photograph as a subject. Um, and I do request this from other folks as well. You mm-hmm. know, the, the word doesn't feel comforting. It doesn't feel soothing. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I prefer the term sitter or the individual's name. And I believe the term sitter is a traditional terminology from painting, right? <laughs> uh, which is a beautiful thing. It's also a mark of respect for me, you know? And I, I also don't categorize my work as a tool for all Black people because there are so many lived experiences missing from the archives. You know, another example is, you know, is there a vast amount of Black disabled lived experiences and voices within my work? I always ask myself these questions because it's, you know, vital for me to craft language that holds true to where I am and what I've made thus far. Um, you know, I don't like to lie on myself, so to say, <laughs> you know, in which I'm, you know, handing you like, you know, an idea or a thought and sort of showering it with things that are not there yet. I want to stick to what's present first. And be very honest about, you know, I am I am learning as I go on. I, mm-hmm. I know that there, again, there are many lived experiences missing from my archives. And, you know, that's, that's also a 50-50 thing, you know, because it also depends on if people want to show up for me, you know, or with me, I should say, not for yep. me, but with me within this practice. And again, like that takes time, you know, I, I think the language around the work is extremely important for me because, you know, I, I do see people you know, creating a lot of beautiful things. But, you know, sometimes when their language is like, you know, this is for all Black people, it's like, I I don't see trans folks in the room or in the images. I don't see gay, bi, lesbian folks, mm-hmm. gender expansive folks. I don't. And so is it for all of us? How do we negotiate our own visibility within our own communities, especially when we are often taught to excel at performing heterosexuality? E. Patrick Johnson, professor, writer, and artist. It's a fascinating question for me because I think we're always uh, negotiating hypervisibility and invisibility. And the strategies that we use to do that dance are really fascinating to me. So my own dance around that was in my attempt to overcompensate for my queerness. What did that look like? So because I you know, was raised in the South, religious um, family, uh, church sissy, and I claim my church sissiness, um, that looked like for me an attempt to hide the fact that I was queer by overachieving so that um, I 
had to make good grades. I had to be in every, you know, uh, club in school. I, I had to be the perfect young black man um, so that ultimately when the discovery happened, that the disappointment wouldn't be as hard. That despite the fact that I was queer, they could say, oh, but look, he done done this. He's made us proud. He's, you know, uh, a credit to our uh, community and so on and so forth. And that all, you know, sort of culminated in this celebration of me in 1996. My hometown came together to celebrate Dr. E. Patrick Johnson Day because I'm the first African-American in my hometown uh, who was born and raised in my hometown to receive a PhD. Um, so the, the community wanted to celebrate that. And it was a beautiful, moving experience for me, except for the fact I was not out. And I always wondered if I had been out when the celebration had happened. And so all of that achievement, all that hard work, all that overcompensating culminated in the in that event at a moment in my life where I could not hold back my sexuality anymore. But in that moment, you know, I chose not to out myself. But I look back at that and I, I feel ashamed that, you know, because by that time, you know, I I was already a college professor and still sort of wanting to to hide um, my sexuality, even though everybody in my professional life knew that I was queer. So that's what I mean by this, at once, this hyper-visibility and this invisibility. And some of the invisibility is by design because of our own, you know, psychosexual process around this. Um, and some of it is about our politics, you know, putting it out there um, for people to to see us in our, I hate to use the word authentic selves, but because uh, that's, you know, what, what does that mean? But standing in our truth. And again, you know, I'm now 53 and I'm still negotiating that. gay and queer gays landing on straight men the importance of us looking back at them Giancarlo Valentin as a photographer who holds the camera in the hand whose job it is to capture often the unseen so that we can see them but also this idea that black men we're seen in a particular way by a public that often runs up against how we see ourselves how to talk a little bit about that tension um, I, I find a lot of pleasure. Um, people, a lot of people are doing a lot of work around photographing queer men intercommunally. So there are a lot of queer photographers, brilliant black men, trans men, um, making images that kind of center maleness in some ways. But I often feel like there is this missing conversation between black gay men photographing black straight men. Um, with the soft fence, I was really so interested in photographing people who I did not agree with, people who I fight with almost every time <laughs> we're in the same room. Literally, all we do is fight. 
because I think I was entering a period um, where I was giving up on black men and uh, black straight men because it is exhausting. Uh, it's just, I mean, there's no other way around it. Uh, it's exhausting to be. Do you hear that, black straight man? <laughs> it's exhausting, exhausting as fuck talking to some of y'all. Not all of y'all. <laughs> Not only y'all, but some yes. okay. okay. And, you know, it, it just became um, kind of a response to that. The The project kind of started to be strengthened by how difficult it was to be friends with DJ, to be friends with Buffalo, when homophobia, when ableism, when sexism, when femphobia, when transphobia was like always like at the tip of their tongues. But I'm also, you know, as a person who... I guess I used to identify more as a black nationalist. I'm somewhere in that family now, um, but with a, maybe a softer tongue attached to it. It's it's um, it's just challenging to not give up on this group of people. But I feel like you know everybody should do the labor that they can do for black liberation. And I do think that it is maybe a part of my not calling because that sounds cliche, but like. It means something to me that I have so many heterosexual black friends who like black straight men who listen to me, who who respect me, who change their behaviors based on (laughs) my scoldings. And I do think that that actually matters a great deal. Like, I do think that it's not like for not to do that. So, I mean, I'm, I'm really interested in that dynamic. A lot of my work is about seeing past facial tattoos or like aggressive behaviors or what you do for a living like how you make your money like and just trying to get to who you are outside of those things and it, and it is simple like I, I always think when it's time for me to talk about photography or my work i get afraid that i'm not interesting like when i fill out applications i'll be like girl you're not <laughs> i just be taking pictures of black people and it really feels as simple as that but like i do think that it is a pretty radical act to for a black feminine gay man to make the kind of space that I do for heterosexual black men. Defining how you wish to be witnessed in your multitudes with spaces for continual self-evolution. Texas Isaiah. You, you, I love this. You, you, I was going to ask, how do you wish to be seen? But I love this. How do you wish to be witnessed? Or how do you demand to be witnessed? Okay. I want to be seen in, in multitudes without any assumptions like laid onto my body and experiences. You know, I also manage my expectations because I am evolving every day like we all are. So today I may want to be witnessed in a particular way, but tomorrow, next week, next month, next year, I know the desire will shift. It's, you know, having people around me and also transforming people as well with the way that I carry myself and my heart and my openness and my vulnerability to be able to like hold all of these things that I may be, you know? And those things, you know, every day I wake up and I'm like, you know, how can I be a better person? You know? Um, and sometimes there's no language attached to that, too. You know? Like, we're always... <laughs> we're Every day we're developing new language um, in relation to our evolution. And, you know, it's... You know, it can be a pro and a con, but, you know, I just want people to understand that, like, 
I am, we collectively shouldn't be seen as one thing. How HIV and stigma influence how we see ourselves in the future, honoring our families and our past. Giancarlo Valentin. I want to get back to your to your writing because you'd be writing in things. And you wrote an essay uh, that was in part about your uncle Jojo and your experience as a child with him dying from AIDS and how that impacted your relationship to, or at least impacted how you think about futures. Um, wondering if you can share a little bit about that as well. Speak to how, if at all, you think we can use images image making to change the way we think about think through um hiv um as a community i mean so yes the essay was here's this like kind of meteoric figure that that died so early in my life and, you know, I, I think for me, because I haven't experienced many, thank God, knock on wood, um, I haven't experienced many close deaths, that death, I just have such a strange relationship to the idea of it. And my Uncle Jojo was the first example of a gay man that I saw. And it was just so, he was just so important. And I think what happens is when people die and they're just like people, everyday people, um, the kind of the world swallows their memory and they're just kind of gone. Um, and the older I got, the more I hated the idea that I want to say all these things about my uncle Jojo, but like nobody knows who he is. Um, like you can't Google his name. He just died. He didn't even disturb the wind when he left. Like he just went. Um, and nobody in my family has like the means or like the the tools to honor him in a like a, in a public way so you know writing that piece was so um it was just so it was just such a night like i usually am so critical of my writing i don't revisit it often i still feel like an elementary school writer compared to what i feel like as a photographer but writing about him is just something that i enjoy going back to it was so honest it was so fun to think about him and his friends and watching them come down those stairs and smelling white diamond in the air and hearing Whitney Houston and just knowing whenever I heard, yeah, woo! As soon as I, like, as soon as I heard the thing, here they come, the keys, the jiggling, the bracelets, like, I, it's so visceral to me visually um, and in all of my senses. And yeah, it just, it brought me so much pleasure to write about it. And, you know, his image was one, like, there were no, nobody made a bunch of photos of him uh, a lot of his likeness is just gone. Like he, his obituary, I can literally think of maybe three to five photos that exist on the planet of him that we have access to. And that a life can kind of just be summed up to three or four images is just so uh, unfortunate. So I don't know that, I don't know that I can articulate what the importance of the images on conversations around HIV or AIDS um or the stigma i obviously people making images like clifford um clifford prince king um has talked about hiv in his work d'angelo lavelle williams has talked about 
um, HIV and it's where their photographers who speak specifically about their experiences of being HIV positive and um, just kind of normalizing, you know, there's a photo that Clifford Prince King made and I remember seeing it and I got just completely floored. And it just, I remember seeing it and looking at it like 10 times because I was like, I don't, I'm, I'm not interpreting this. I like, I don't understand what I'm seeing. Because I was like, wait, is this a reveal? Like, I, I just felt so many reactions to it, but it was stunning. And it should be a thing that didn't surprise me other than, you know, from its beauty. Uncle Jojo was obsessed with music. It was a constant in my grandmother's home. Back when he was healthy, I could tell when he and his closest set of gay friends were getting ready to head out to the club by how loud the music was. First, I'd hear Whitney Houston's I Wanna Dance With Somebody coming on from upstairs. Tony, Sean, Ronald Belt, and Uncle Jojo's voices would caterwaul to the ceiling, struggling to keep up with Whitney's ferocious range. When I heard Patti LaBelle singing, Somebody Loves You Baby, I'd know that they were almost done. Then I'd smell perfume walk gently down into the living room. Sometimes he would use grandmother's white diamond, a strong floral scent meant only for ladies of a certain age. Other times he'd use local body oils from strange men with strange names like Slap Your Mama or Sex on the Beach. Within minutes, the music would cease. I'd hear his keys jangle and their stylish heeled shoes would come click clacking down the stairs. I loved watching them. The colors and fabrics cascading against that flat yellow light of my grandmother's aging floor lamps. The confidence with which they strutted out the door. I had no language for it then, but that feeling in my chest was kinship. I always wanted to go with him, but I never dared ask. When he was at his sickest and could no longer make it to the top of the stairs, my grandmother placed a hospital bed in the center of the dining room. There, beneath a wood-framed painting of white Jesus, laid my uncle, gaunt and wasting, disappearing right in front of our eyes. At this point, he was also battling AIDS dementia complex, and he was essentially losing his mind. He would talk to himself constantly and forget all of our names. He even had one instance where he covered the living room walls with his shit. One evening, as he lay on his deathbed listening to music, he played Queen, who wants to live forever at full volume. I don't remember where everyone else in the house was, but it was just him and I in the dining room. He stared at his reflection in my grandmother's tall mahogany china cabinet where she used to hide the good plates and sang the lyrics. There's no time for us. There's no place for us. What is this thing that builds our dreams yet slips away from us? When it came time for the chorus, who wants to live forever? Who wants to live forever? Who? He screamed and screeched as much as he could, tears streaming down his face until my grandmother ran into the room and turned down the volume. I remember his arm falling to the floor, his wrists too thin to hold his bracelets. I didn't understand it then, the connection to Freddie Mercury, the sad irony in the lyrics. I just hated to see him cry. Two weeks later, on September 26, 1996, at 26 years old, he was dead. Are you paying attention to Hollywood, publishing, and all those industries of story making? 
understand that there is a deep power in process and that it's ultimately one of the ways to deeply honor how we wish to be seen. Texas Isaiah. So like people see the story, but they don't know all the many steps that you go through in order to get that visual story out there. Talk us through your process. You gave us a hint. You talked about pre-production. Talk us through your process. How do you come up with the ideas? What does pre-production look like? What does production look like? What does editing and revision look like for you? Yeah, um, you know, as I am attempting to shift, you know, I guess this narrative around Black people, but particularly Black trans and gender expansive people, you know, because we have certainly experienced widespread invisibility and continue to um, within mainstream visual culture, um, I believe, you know, there is just a great difficulty finding our people's like archives and my mm-hmm. introduction to contributing and also creating new visual libraries has to begin with some foundation of consent and respect. You know, photography continues to be utilized within every aspect of discrimination and colonialism. It's certainly changing, um, but that's something that that is still sort of rooted, you know, in this medium that I love. And I think it's important to ask people what they want from their images. And as timely as that process may take, it's incredibly important. You know, this is not to say that every image that the sitter and I produce will be amazing. Um, however, their entrance into image making will eventually lead them to ask for the things they need and potentially be seen in how they um, in how they deserve to be seen. I guess that's the work and the and the process that that occurs, and then it moves into you know the the production of those images. And so, you know, I you know typically ask people, you know, have they been photographed before? How are they feeling in the moment? And remind people that we're hanging out. Like, this isn't, you know, some session for a brand or et cetera, et cetera. You know, this session is for you. And so, you know, once we complete it, you know, um, especially for the very, very personal shoots, you know, if the sitter wishes to not display the images publicly, then that's their right. You know, because I think that at least... Publicly, like, there are uh, maybe only 30% of my archive that is public, and the rest is just sitting there because, you know, people need some time with Mm -hmm. their images. And they have, you know, full control over that display. And I think it's important, and, you know, I think other photographers may feel differently about that, you know, which is legitimate. You know, I think it it also brings in, like, a, a, a huge discussion on how, you know, uh, our sort of collective awareness around image making, um, how that should be managed, you know? Um, so this way isn't the only way, you know? It's also not the only right way, but it is my way because um, I, as I said before, like, I I know what it feels like to be in front of the camera. Like, I've photographed myself before, you know, and that's why I've produced self-portraits is because I also need to be in that position to understand why it is incredibly important for people to be seen in a way that feels good for them. Who wants to live forever? 
we do. In the words of those that love us, in the images of those who capture us, in archives that represent all of us, witness us, gaze at us, look at us gaze back at you, but mostly let us be seen as we wish to be. Let us define ourselves and let that definition evolve as we explore, edit, revise, revisit, and expand indefinitely and forever. Being Seen is produced by Harley and Company and Darnell Moore and created in partnership with Vive Healthcare. Theme music is provided by Moses Sumney.